This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. I don't know why you brought them with you, said Swift Fox. There's too many of them. We can't feed them. That's a reading from Margaret Atwood's new novel, Mad Adam, launched in Toronto this week. In a few minutes, I'll bring you my conversation with the author. Plus, this week, CARP released a comprehensive research report on the evolving expectations and ambitions of Canadians eligible to retire. It finds that most older workers want to keep working, but on their own terms. I'll talk to CARP Susan Eng about what these results mean for Zoomers and the workforce. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The man behind the Canadian caper, former Ambassador Ken Taylor, was front and centre in Toronto this week for the premiere of the documentary, Our Man in Tehran. It was thought that the U.S. could mount a commando raid. It was a daring scheme called Eagle Claw. Taylor revealed new details about Canada's role in the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis, including his intelligence gathering for the CIA. Last year's blockbuster movie Argo gave the U.S. spy agency all the credit for springing the six American diplomats that Canada sheltered for two months after they escaped their besieged embassy. Taylor says this film will set the record straight. This would be a chance to... Tell Canadians what really did happen in Tehran. The Ontario Division of the Canadian Cancer Society will start charging for the service it is best known for. It has provided free transportation for patients who need rides to their treatment since the 1950s. But as of October 1st, the CCS will start charging a one-time $100 fee. The service is delivered by volunteers who are paid 30 cents a kilometre. A review found the program cost the charity more than $6 million a year, or about $390 for each cancer patient receiving regular rides. It was thought that low testosterone was responsible for so-called male menopause symptoms. But a surprising study in the New England Journal of Medicine finds that a drop in estrogen also plays a role in declining libido and an expanding waistline. In fact, some of the symptoms routinely associated with low testosterone are almost exclusively due to insufficient estrogen, according to this research. She was an expert on aging and Canada's oldest nun when she died at the age of 109. Sister Constance Murphy, who died at the Toronto convent where she lived for 80 years, once summed up her secrets in 10 points. Among them, aging is normal, God-given. We grow more like ourselves as we age, and you can teach an old dog new tricks, lots of them. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 
It's one of the most anticipated books of the season. This week in Toronto, Margaret Atwood launched Mad Adam, the final volume in her dystopian trilogy. That's one of the hymns from the year of the flood, the previous book in the series. Mad Adam is set months after the waterless flood pandemic has wiped out most of humanity. Here's a snippet. I don't know why you brought them with you, said Swift Fox. There's too many of them. We can't feed them. We won't have to, said Manatee. They eat leaves, remember? That's how Crake designed them, so they'd never need agriculture. Right, said Swift Fox. You worked on the module, me, I did the brains, the frontal lobes, the sensory input modifications. I tried to make them less boring, but Crake wanted no aggression, no jokes even. They're like walking potatoes. They're really nice, said Wren. Anyway, the women are. Did you have a feeling that you were saying goodbye to these characters or anything like that? Well, I think that happens every time you publish a book anyway. It's like, uh, here's your lunch bucket, here's your bus ticket. Go out there and make new friends. Goodbye. (laughs) When you look around at the world today, and you think about your dystopian worlds that you've created, uh, do you, what do you see? I create my worlds out of the existing world that we live in, and I don't put anything into them that we're not doing right now or that we don't have the tools to do. So it's not, it's not another galaxy far, far away. It's uh, here and it's, it's now. It's just a little bit further along. So is this a warning? I think all books like this are slightly warnings, but they're not predictions. Because there are too many variables, nobody can really predict the future. You're a writer, but you're also an activist writer. How do these books fit into that? I've never defined myself as an activist writer. Uh, I think that anybody that's writing about what they observe could be called an activist, Um, but it depends how big your canvas is. You're an activist on the issues around? Yeah, 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 that's a different thing. Yeah, so what are the issues that we're most active in? The issues that we're most active in right now have to do with uh, the biosphere and uh, conservation because that is the biggest problem that the human race is facing right now. We're running out of stuff. We're taking more out than we're putting back and that is not a process that can continue indefinitely. And where do you think we're at in terms of that? Are we five minutes to midnight? Um, about like that, but I think there's a lot of people that are quite aware of that, and there are many bright minds working on the problems. Can you tell us what you're working on next? What I'm working on next, not being one of those bright minds. (laughs) Uh, I'm finishing a manuscript of um, unorthodox stories that will come out next fall. And uh, I also have a couple of other projects that I'm involved in, and I'm looking forward to seeing the Handmaid's Tale Ballet by the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. That'll be in October. 
and the Pauline Johnson Opera is scheduled to premiere in May. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Matt Adam is published by McClelland and Stewart. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. 57% of Canadians over the age of 50 want to work past the traditional age of retirement. That's the finding of a huge CARP research survey, Second Wind, The Evolving Nature of Retirement. In just a moment, I'll be joined by CARP's VP of Advocacy, Susan Ng. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Do you want to keep working after the age of 65? Most of us do. According to a new survey commissioned by Ceridian and CARP, 60% of us plan to stay in the workforce, but we want to do it on our own terms, and we know full well there is age discrimination. I sat down with Susan Ang, CARP's VP of Advocacy. First of all, let's remember that, you know, people living longer and healthier lives, and they just want to keep working, but others have to. And so they're nervous about their jobs. So even though they do want to keep working, many of them need to take time off to look after a loved one. Maybe they're not quite as willing to put in nine to five, five days a week. And maybe they can contribute a different way. And so we're starting to see a shift in the workplace. You're saying that there are a number of easy and affordable ways that employers can uh, retain these workers. Well, first of all, they have to realize that uh, workers who may not want to work full time, nonetheless, are still very committed to their company. And so they realize, of course, that if they do sometimes not very difficult things to make them feel welcome in the workplace, perhaps assign them to a recruiting function or mentoring even as an ambassador for the company, that they will have a very committed employee. In addition to that, one of the major needs of many of the employees has been health coverage. Now, uh, most part-time employees can't get health coverage, and this is something employees can look into. Indeed, many of these employees be willing to pay both halves of that health coverage because it's so much more cost-effective for them to be part of a larger group. Now, I was always under the impression that those restrictions, they come from the insurance industry, not from employers. I mean, I know even here, my boss just recently retired, George Grant. Well, he couldn't get coverage after the age of 70, not because we didn't want to give it to him. Well, actually, that's not entirely accurate. It is possible for employers to purchase a different plan. Uh, indeed, many unionized environments have post-retirement health coverage. So it's not an impossibility. It's a choice that the employers can make. But it's not the same plan that you get for everybody no, else. No, no. You, you may have to buy a different one. So that's, that's really a big deal. And, and presumably, so the older workers would be willing to pay and, and presumably also would be able to, willing to take less salary in exchange for that. Well, that actually is part of the premise of many uh, workplace benefits. You know, if you provide a pension plan or health benefits, quite often that's in exchange for a higher salary. One of the things, just as a devil's advocate, so older workers, they want to work, but they want to work on their own terms. As a Zoomer, I certainly understand that. As an employer, you know, I need our people to work when I need them to work and not when they want to work necessarily. Fair comment, fair comment. And I think that that's where we start to see a certain change in the workplace. For example, when it was the day when women had to fight for maternity leave, that was always the argument by employers. 
why should I provide that absence and what do I do while they're gone? Well, what it did over time was actually reinforce the work-life balance of people. And what you had there was a shift in attitudes in the workplace. I think the same thing is going to happen now with older workers, as you find that first, they may not want to work the same kind of hours, but they make a different kind of commitment that the workplace can benefit from. Plus, I think employers were going to see value in an intergenerational or multi-generational workplace where the generations can learn from each other. When an employer wants to save money, They get rid of their top-earning people who've been there for many, many years, and they replace them with a younger worker who makes a lot less money. To some extent, that's penny-wise and pound-foolish. If you assume that the younger worker is exactly the same experience and exactly the same value and contribution as the older worker, then, of course, that makes economic sense. But if you recall that you have an older worker with years of experience, perhaps reinforced commitment to the organization, and an informal network of contacts that might actually give you a competitive advantage compared to uh, your other competitors, then maybe this is an opportunity for the company to make best use of their older workers. What about uh, the split? So you said 60% want to keep working because they have to, 40 because they want to. Is that going to change as people live longer and longer? Is the cohort that is working out of financial need going to grow? Well, right now we're seeing an increasing trend of people who have to keep working. And we're seeing it in all categories, people who feel they haven't saved enough, uh, people who had their savings devastated in the last crash, people taking on debt, and, of course, paying for their children's education and living expenses after they're graduated and haven't found a job. So there is that squeeze that's happening right now, and I imagine that this is going to become a, a growing trend, not a decreasing one. Anything else that uh, you would like us to take away from this survey? I think it's a great opportunity for us to start the conversation. In many workplaces, uh, older workers do not feel welcome. I think it's an opportunity for us to change that conversation around and say what can we do to engage and encourage and recruit more older workers. Okay, Susan Eng, thanks so much. Thank you. For more information, you can go to carp.ca. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, is winding up for another year. Lately, we've seen a lot of films geared towards Zoomers. Here's one that definitely comes with a twist. Coming up, we'll take a look at Gerontophilia, a story about a teenager who finds love while working at a nursing home. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your international art state book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. In New York City, Orlando Bloom and Condola Rashad star in the first Broadway production of Romeo and Juliet since 1977. The first half of the play actually is a romantic comedy. It, it really, really is. is. It really, it's a really is. There's, there's so much about it that is, that is very light. The Shakespeare classic is in previews at Richard Rogers Theatre. In Los Angeles, find out how many shopping carts it takes to hold up a house. Artist Hector Zamora built a timber stud frame of a single-family home on top of carts with wheels. 
It's on display at Red Cat's Downtown Gallery. To London, England, where they're celebrating 150 years of the world's oldest subway system. An exhibition at the London Transport Museum brings together 150 of the most iconic designs in poster art displayed in London's underground tube since 1908. And in northern Italy, the Museum of the Violin opens in celebration of Antonio Stradivari and other master violin makers. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Date Book. Gerontophilia. Yes, you heard me right. It's a movie with a whole new spin on Zoomer Love, directed by bad boy filmmaker Bruce LaBruce, with veteran actor William Borden in the lead role. Gerontophilia debuted at TIFF this week after a wildly successful world premiere in Venice. I hope we have enough for mouse. Moose, dear, moose. And remember, just a tan. Here's the plot in a nutshell. An 18-year-old boy takes a summer job in a nursing home where he has an affair with an 82-year-old man. He finds out the residents are being over-medicated to keep them docile. He springs his lover and they go on a road trip posing as grandfather and grandson. I chatted with the director and the star. Gerontophilia. What made you choose this topic? Well, uh, in my films, I, in the past, I've quite often addressed uh, certain kinds of fetishes um, that are, you know, uh, taboo. I've met a lot of people over the years who've had intergenerational relationships and, and kind of very specific fetishes. Um, I find that the misconception is that they're not normal or that they're kind of like, um, you know, freaks or something. And actually, they're, they can be very romantic about it. Usually, when you see the intergenerational thing happening, it's more an older person fixated on a young person. This is the opposite. Yeah, that was kind of the, you know, gentle irony of the film. It's like a reverse Lolita in a sort of way. And it's also, you know, just a kind of gentle satire as well about uh, the cult of youth and beauty and and how um, the elderly are are kind of, uh, aren't considered sexual or, or desirable, and, and it's kind of going against the grain in that respect as well. Last year, we saw a bunch of sort of feel-good, very mainstream type of movies featuring older people, our people too, late quartet, uh, the best Marigold Hotel. This is, this is a really different thing, you know, older people as sexual objects. Yeah, and, but the, the kind of other twist of the film is that, you know, I'm usually known for making very sexually explicit films and kind of shocking films with pornographic content. And this time I, I did it in a more, you know, slightly more mainstream kind of conventional narrative kind of way. But the, but the actual content is still quite provocative because the old man is the object of desire. He, he is very, his body is shown in close-ups. He is naked in the film. Um, he's, he, he's naked more in the film than the boy is. Walter Borden, what made you want to do this film? Well, it was a, I knew it was going to be a challenge, but when I read the script the, the, for the very first time, I thought, I like this story. Yeah, I like the story. Well, it's, 
simply a love story. But the interesting thing was to me that regardless of what direction it comes from, a love story is a love story. And I liked the way that it was handled. I liked that. You look pretty damn good. How old are you in real life? I'm 71. The, the sad thing is that uh, the, the older you get, the more you're expected to uh, put your emotions in a little box and stuff it away. And uh, that's not the way it happens. You're naked in this film. I'm naked every day of my life. It's the natural thing to happen uh, in accordance with the story. And uh, I know a number of people have said to me, particularly friends, uh, you know, well, what do you think? What, what, you know, how did you feel? I didn't feel any different than I feel any time. Do you think you'll be smashing any stereotypes, breaking ground with this? Well, you know what? I don't, I don't look, at, look at it quite so dramatically, you know, as smashing stereotypes. Not, not at this stage of the game, not in 2013. But if the movie makes them think, that's nice. If it makes them change, that's even nicer. But it definitely will give them something to think about. Gerontophilia will be released in theaters this February. And by the way, it has a 14 and above rating. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to find out about a new program to provide easier, quicker, and better screening for arthritis. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bendry. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.